Good morning. Go ahead and grab a Bible or the Pew Bible in front of you. A little bit different this morning. We will be standing together to read the scripture passage, but we are introducing a new series, and I don't want there to be a huge gap between when we read the text and then when we dive into the text. So go ahead and uh, you can put your finger on page 951. That's Romans 16, verses 25 through 27. Romans 16, verses 25 through 27. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the gift of singing. Thank you for how you have designed it to be an expression of emotion, of feeling, of our heart's desire. Thank you for even the way, if we're not feeling like that, how you use song, how you use the songs of other people to affect us, God. So just what happened a little bit ago, that was you working through the power of your Holy Spirit to magnify yourself, to encourage our spirits. Lord, so thank you for that gift. I pray, Lord, that you would do the same thing through your word right now. Lord, that any areas of our hearts that are hardened towards you, God, would you please chip away? Would you be merciful to us? The areas that we have hidden from you or that we try to hide from you, rather, Lord, that you would expose them through the preaching of your word. I pray that the areas that we doubt your goodness, that we doubt your care for us, that we doubt that you you see in us, Lord, that you would make those known, make your character known to us, God. So we'll reveal more of yourself to us, we plead with you. And we plead this in the name of Christ. Amen. What does the Bible say about God? That is our simple sermon this morning. Um, Not so simple, because I'm tempted just to start in Genesis and go from Genesis to Revelation. That is what the Bible says about God. But because of time constraints, we're not going to do that this morning. We are taking a break from our regular diet of instruction, which if you've been attending our church for a while, we call expositional preaching. That is, preaching where you take a book of the Bible and you preach it from beginning to end. We do that so that we do not impose our own opinions onto the text. You see, one can even preach correct things and truths about God, but miss the primary aim given in a text. However, at certain times, giving topical sermons can serve the church. And so that is what we're, do, we're doing this morning. So if you're new to our church, this is a little bit irregular for us. But um, while we don't want the nature of this series to be normal pattern for the preaching here, we think that choosing the topics in the next few weeks will help us dive into his word and help us to be uh, more astute Christians. So that being said, our What Does the Bible Say About series will serve to chisel out a few Seven or eight, rather eight different topics of our understanding. First, what does the Bible say about God? Secondly, how God speaks to us. Thirdly, what does the Bible say about people? What does the Bible say about Jesus? What does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit? How can people be saved? What does the Bible say about the church? And finally, and appropriately, what does the Bible say about the end times? So we want to anchor our understanding of God in the Bible and have the Word of God be our lens through which we understand God. We want to take this book, and we don't want to look to other sources as to who God is, but we want to take this, and we want to see the world, we want to see God, we want to see people, we want to see what does God say about salvation through this. This is a rock. This does not change. But fads change. Ideas change. Messages change. But this remains the same. And that is our heart at this church. That we should filter everything through the lens of Scripture. Otherwise, and this is why it's critical. Otherwise, we are, as Paul warned, 
at risk to be tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. This is what he warned Timothy. He said to Timothy that a time is coming when people will long for teaching that itches their ears. Or another translation says, it tickles their ears. So I just want to go to a church that makes me, that affirms what I already believe about God. I don't want to attend a church that challenges what I believe about God. But I want a church that affirms my presuppositions about God. That is what was happening in Paul's day shortly after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. And that is what's been going on throughout the history of the world ever since. And it is definitely going on in our current day. So brothers and sisters, do not accumulate for yourselves teachers to suit your own desires. That is a danger. Filter everything through the word of God. And if that's hard on you, know that that's the same experience for every Christian. We all encounter things in the word of God that are difficult. But we want to be anchored in God's word, nothing else. So many have adhered to sound biblical teaching before and have wandered into traps of preachers seeking self-indulgence and fame, forsaking the true teachings of the the Bible in order to gain man's approval. So Maple Avenue Baptist Church, we long not to be as such. We do not want to be like so many that have once affirmed the truth and have erred. We long for our doctrine to be robustly biblical, And this is not some abstract principle that does not affect your life. You see, if you want a right life that pleases God, a right life flows out of right doctrine. A right life flows out of right doctrine. Paul is writing, saying, I am writing this letter to you, to Timothy, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Listen, how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So we have morality, behavior, life. Then he says, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. A pillar and buttress or a safeguard or a reinforcement or a protection of truth. So the church of God protects the doctrine of God only through the word of God. Your behavior, your morality, the way you love others, the way you care for others, your pure thoughts will flow out of a church whose pillars and reinforcement structures are truth. They're not gimmicky. They're not fog lights and zip lines. Yes, that's true. Zip lines. That has happened before. Not in our church, probably not in Canada. You're not as showy as the States. So, Christians... Don't lose sight of that. Ever since the gospel message has been fully revealed, assaults on the truth have been laid and far too often successful. But I wonder how successful they would have been if men and women of God thoroughly examined every teaching against the word of God. Charles Spurgeon said, There's nothing new in theology except that which is false. Nothing new in theology, except the false things. And so that we don't venture into what is false, or so that we can spot it. You see, you can have right doctrine, but be puffed up and arrogant. We want to rightly praise God with our correct doctrine. Doctrine and praise are intertwined, and that's why our text today is a doxology a study of worship. That is why this liturgy found at the end of Romans is such a good place for us to set up a platform to know God. In this text, we see that, his doc, that Paul's doctrine of God leads to praise and glorifying in God. So Paul doesn't think doctrine is just some old catechism that collects dust. His doctrine of God fuels his praise and worship of God. So if you feel like you've been lacking in your praise or worship or your sense of God's closeness to you 
or you don't, understand, you don't feel his love for you, check your doctrine. Perhaps you don't know your doctrine, or perhaps you have your doctrine over here divorced from your worship of God. In this text, we see that the doctrine leads to praise and leads to glorifying of God. So obviously, since our text is, what is or our, our question that we're asking this morning is, what does the Bible say about God? I've asked several people this week, and they just look at me, and they all say similar things as to what, what I said when I initially dove into this text. But the sermon is not going to be an exhaustive list of what the Bible says about God. If that's your expectation, I just squashed it there. It will not be that. If you want that, then you just keep coming back every week until Jesus comes back or until you pass away, because we're never going to exhaust what the Bible says about God. But the Bible also says a lot about man and the Savior. He says a lot, says a lot about rulers and evil, but we want to ask more acutely, more specifically this morning, what does it actually say about God? And then are the Bible's claims really that unique to other claims of religious books? Or is the Bible just simply another religious book just written by man in order to appease or to acknowledge God? So where does one pick such a text on such a broad topic? So we are going to what is often referred to and described as the most all-encompassing book on knowing and understanding who God is and what he's done. We're going to the book of Romans. A.W. Tozer said, What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So I'm curious, what does come to your mind when you hear the word God? It's right there. What just popped into your mind? What thoughts are lingering right now after I said God and lingering? Tozer said that's the most important thing about a person. So I've chosen this text because I think we can at least gather seven attributes of God from this text. At least seven attributes. And I did not pick the number of seven because I was looking for some uh, numerology in in the scriptures. If you don't know, the number seven is often repeated. It's called the number of completion. But when I realized that I had eight things and I could morph two of them together to make seven, I was a little giddy. So we have seven attributes of God from this text. So with that lengthy introduction, go ahead and rise with us. We're going to read Romans chapter 16. It's on page 951. Romans 16. Verses 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed And through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God, be glory forevermore, through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. First, from the text. We see that God is a personal and interactive God. God is personal. The Bible of the God is interactive. He knows. He is personal. Look at verse 25, the first part of it. It says, He is able to strengthen you. Here the apostle is saying that God is able to provide them with the strength to carry out all the commands, all the imperatives that were given in all the previous 16 chapters of Romans. And he's saying, He, God, is able to strengthen you to do those things, to believe this way, to follow his commands. 
So if you are weak and in need of strength, he provides the strength. In this text, the Apostle Paul is closing this letter by reminding them that the God is not just some abstract being out there, but he's actually able to change you and do something to you. He can strengthen you. He has the ability. He has the knowledge of you. And he has, and you, this is what he's saying to believers, not just does God have the knowledge of you, but you have the knowledge of him through Christ. He is not some cosmic force in some alternate universe having started this process of life in motion and merely being an observer from afar. He's not just watching out how things play out and, and observing like someone's watching a play or at the theater. He's not an abstract being that can't know or be known. He is interactive, he is directive, and he guides our God, according to the Bible, he can actually affect you. Don't get past that. God can change you. If you feel you're weak to follow the commands of Scripture, you are. You are weak and I am weak. But God can strengthen you. He can enter into your world and he can change you. He is not some big man in the sky or the proverbial man upstairs. Have you heard that after a sporting event? Someone wins the Super Bowl. What do you want to say? I just want to thank the big man upstairs for helping me win this game. That's not the God of the Bible. He's not some just casual big papa upstairs. You see, all people know there is a God. The Bible makes that very clear. Atheism has been around for ages, but the growth of atheism is a very new thing. All people throughout the age of history have at least acknowledged there is a God. Before atheism was very strong, it was more agnosticism. Yeah, there's a God, but I don't really know who he is. I don't think anyone can really know who he is. But Romans 1 says that There is a general revelation of God throughout the created world that we can look around, we can drive through the Colorado Rockies, and we can look and we can see beautiful mountain, snow-capped, pine trees everywhere, and say, wow, somebody did that. That's saying, that's general revelation saying there is a God. You can drive, as I was a couple weeks ago, on the coast of Lake Superior, looking over the cliffs and saying, wow, God did that. You see, everyone can do that. Everyone can look at a sunset and say, look at those colors, how the oranges and the yellows, the pinks contrast against the blue sky. That is God. That is what theologians call a general revelation of God. And Romans 1 says, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So God makes, man sees, man knows there is a God. But, this is the biggest but I'll have all sermon. But, that was not meant to be a cliche joke. It just came out. Excuse me. I've heard that like 20 times since I've been a Christian. So I did not mean to say that. However, However, that does not mean that we know God. While the God of the Bible is a personal God, man does not naturally know this God. Indeed, you cannot be acquainted with the God of the Bible in a relationship just by viewing his magnificent creation. In fact, the Bible goes a step further. It doesn't just say that, we don't, that you can't know God. It actually says that you are an enemy of God. You are an enemy of God. You see, earlier in chapter 5 of this letter in Romans, Paul reminds them that they were once enemies of God. And, friend, an enemy is not someone who's indifferent towards God. An enemy is someone who's proactively hostile toward his enemy. And that's what Romans 1 is saying, that while you know about God, you do not know this God. And you've chosen in your own heart to suppress what you can clearly see through creation. 
Just like if you and I have never met one another. I know most of you in this room, but there's a lot of you I haven't met. And a lot of you haven't known me. You might know some things about me. That I'm tall, that I have some children, and that I preach occasionally here. But do you actually know me? Or do I know you? No. We've actually never met. And that is similar to what Romans is saying about man's natural state as it relates to God. Yeah, you can affirm there is a God, but until you, until you know this God, until you're introduced to this God, you are actually an enemy of God. While you can look and behold his masterpiece of creation, you don't know what he's like until he's revealed himself to you. Indeed, you can't know him until you are no longer enemies with him. I know that might shock some of you, but that's what the Bible says those who don't know God, that they're an enemy toward God. I know that most of you, or if, you are not, if you're new to Christianity, you probably reserve that term, the term enemy to God, to someone like a terrorist or some serial murderer. But when it comes down to it, the Bible puts us all under that, that we are all enemies of God. And so just let that resonate with you. Don't worry, we won't stay there forever, but that's what the Bible calls us. God does want you to know him, though. He is a personal God who is able to do things to you and strengthen you. And that's largely what the book of Romans is about. General revelation is totally insufficient to know this God. But what theologians call special revelation, that is revelation that comes through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's what verse 25 continues on to say, Now the God who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, that is special revelation. So notice what Romans does there. Opens up with general revelation, gives a doxology of praise to God for special revelation. Special revelation through Jesus Christ is completely sufficient to know God. And that is a huge part of knowing what the Bible says about God, is that he is personal. Secondly, and and don't worry, if you're looking at your clock, the first two are going to take the longest, along with number six. Other ones will be a little quicker. I could just sense it. Secondly, God is wisdom. God is wisdom. God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. Throughout Scripture, wisdom is attributed to God. Listen to what Job says. Job says that wisdom and might, excuse me, Job says that with God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding, and he is wise in, in heart. Similarly, the psalmist declares that, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. But most profoundly, see, those are general revelation things. So Christians can still glory in general revelation things. Most profoundly, we behold his wisdom in the plan of redemption. God is most, hold on. God is most clearly seen as wise in his plan of redemption. 1 Corinthians talks about this. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, it doesn't make sense to a word full of a world full of those idolizing power and influence for a means of selfish ambition, for a king to die, particularly in the manner, the way that King Jesus died, a public trial mocked for, for his claims of being God. It doesn't make sense. Worldly wisdom says that is foolish. That's not power or success. That is a waste, and that is weak. But because God is wise, that is how he has designed man to be reconciled to God. Listen to what 
one um, quote-unquote reverend says, the reverend of St. Albans Cathedral in England told BBC listeners this, the following, particularly about the crucifixion of Jesus. He says, It's pretty repulsive, as well as nonsensical, that Jesus would die for the sins of the world. He continued by saying, What sort of God was this? Getting so angry with the world that, and people that he, had a, he, that he created, and then to calm himself down, he demanded the blood of his own son. And anyways, why should God forgive us through punishing somebody else? It's worse than illogical. It's insane. It made God sound like a psychopath. The irony is, end quote, the irony is that statement, a powerful, well-known man under the banner of Christianity, considered by wise to many in this world, he is affirming what 1 Corinthians is saying. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Have you ever considered that? That when someone is mocking the message of Christianity, they're just affirming what's already written in Scripture. So if someone can't grasp that God himself had to come to earth and die on a cross so that man could be reconciled, that the relationship between God and man could be mended, if they don't get that, they call that foolishness, God is saying, no, you are foolishness. And I've actually, I've actually hidden the wise things of myself from you because you are suppressing. You are suppressing what you already know about me. So let that be an encouragement. To, when the world mocks the, the Christian message, know that they're just actually affirming what's already said in Scripture. And then break out in praise because you're not there because of what he's done. He's revealed himself to you. It's power of God for salvation for those who believe first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. That is happening in your life. The wisdom of God is seen. A six-year-old girl can understand the gospel message, while the likes of Albert Einstein never get it. That is the wisdom of God. Who could design such a marvelous plan? That is the Muslim's main drawback when it comes to Jesus. Certainly, Jesus wasn't God because, according to Muslims, God would never lower himself to be hung on a cross. It's foolishness to them. But to God, it's showing his wisdom. The wisdom of God is that the gospel can be explained in less than a minute, yet you can take a lifetime and never fully understand the gospel. Friends, when the scales of our eyes have been destroyed by God, we rightly say along with, the Paul, with Paul in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. We also see the wisdom of God in the church. A group of different races and ages and hobbies and interests and likes all gathering together because we believe the same gospel message. And God is making his wisdom known through the, manifold, through the church. Ephesians 3 says, uh, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the world, to the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places. So God's wisdom is seen even this morning. Look around. This is the display of God's wisdom. What do you have in common with everyone here? If you've been coming to our church a long time, if you are a Christian, I don't have a common with a lot of you. We probably wouldn't hang out much if it weren't for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are now my brother and sister, and not in some forced relationship, but I actually love other Christians that otherwise I wouldn't be anything like, and they wouldn't be anything like me. That is the wisdom of God. There is so much here on the wisdom of God, but we must move on. God is personal according to the Bible. Secondly, God is wise according to the Bible. And third, God is eternal. This doxology is now given, look in verse 26, 
to the eternal God. This God who is being praised has no beginning. He has no end. He always was. He always will be. This is the essence of the famous response that God gives Moses when he is about to deliver a message to the Israelites. Moses says, who should I say that sent me? And Moses responds, or God responds to Moses and he says, tell them I am who I am has sent you. What? I am who I am. He says, yes, say I am has sent you. God is the essence of everything. He has always existed. He has no beginning. He has no end. Revelation describes him as the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and end. Not meaning that he actually had a beginning, but that's a literary device saying that he encompasses all of time. You see, to God, he sees all time equally vividly. So while you and I The experiences of our days ebb and flow. We have moments in our life that are profound, moments in our life that are dull. God sees everything vividly, equally so. Peter tells us that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and as a thousand years, one day. Our God is not confined by time. You had a hard day yesterday. To God, it was like a thousand years years. You've lived 80 years to God that's like one day. The Bible is very clear that God has always existed. He has no beginning. He has no end. God is everywhere. You can't even explain it. That's why in Hebrews he said, or in, in, um, in the Hebrew language in Exodus it says, I am has sent you. Ponder on that just this morning or, or, or after lunch. I am who I am. That just will blow your mind. I wish I could just do a sermon right now on Exodus. This is the problem with this layout. I want to do like eight mini-sermons or seven mini-sermons. Okay. God is wise. God is personal. God is eternal. Fourthly, God is righteous. This great doxology, the obedience of faith, is mentioned as the goal of the mystery revealed. Friends, this is alluding to Romans 4, where Abraham is counted righteous because he believed God. And this is a commentary, really, on Genesis 5, 15. So Genesis 15 happened. Romans 4 is mentioned. And then in the end of the book of Romans, Paul says, According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. All these things have happened this way. Romans 8, 9, election. Romans 10, Israel not understanding who God is. Romans 11, opening it up to the Gentiles. All this has happened so that we, God would bring about the obedience of faith. God cares about how we act because he himself is righteous and holy. Abraham was not counted righteous because of what he did, but because he believed God and, it count, and God credited his belief to him as righteousness. And here in Romans 15, it's not because of what Paul did or what the believers in Rome did. It's because of what God has done, done for them. In Christ, God is saying that I am righteous and you are not righteous. You are actually enemies of me. You want to be reconciled to me. This is what's done through my son. Now you are made righteous. Now you can be accredited righteousness through believing in my son. That is faith accredited to righteousness. So God wants us to be righteous, Christian, non-Christian. That is because God himself is righteous. Fifthly, I told you we'd move fast as we go in. God is the only God. Look at that at the very end. Don't miss this. According to the only wise God. The only God. There is but one. If there are more than one God, then the pains that Paul is taking now in this letter, he wants to go to Spain. He wants to get to Spain to deliver this message. If all the gods that the Spaniards believed at the time, if they were true, God wouldn't take so much, uh, Paul wouldn't take 
such a grueling effort to get there. 1 Corinthians talks about how he was beaten over and over again, just shy of 40 times. He wouldn't have so much effort in carrying on this mission if there were multiple gods. But there is only one God. And if you are part of my generation and younger, then this flies in the face of everything you have been taught since you were little. Ah, the God of the Muslims, the God of the Christians, the God of the Jews, the God of the Hindus, the God of the Buddhists, those in China, agnostics. As long as we try to be good persons and you believe that your God is the right way, then, we'll, then, then really that's all that matters. That is the anthem of my generation, sadly so, because that is a completely illogical. That, that is completely illogical. You see, the principle of mutual exclusivity says this. Two truth claims cannot be both true if they contradict each other. I think we can all understand that, right? I mean, nod of heads. If I have a coin here and I flip it, it's going to land head or tails. It's not going to land some mysterious, magical way on heads and tails, right? That makes no sense. And yet the folly of this generation, and I used to believe this too, so I'm not putting myself above this. I, this used to be my anthem before I became a Christian when I was 16. It doesn't make any sense. The true claims of Christianity are either true or they're patently false. What you're doing right now is true, it's good for your soul, or it's just a complete waste of time. And you should be sleeping in Sunday morning, having a nice brunch, and going playing golf later on. That should be your Sunday morning if this is not true. However, if this is true, something's going on here. You're being refined and conformed to what the Bible says about who God is. So the God of the Bible is one God. He is one. Sixthly, our sixth point is that God is glorious. If you have your Bible open, Go to page 1041. Page 1041. If you have your own Bible, that's Revelation 21, verses 22 through 27. Revelation 21, verses 22 through 27. Let me just say, I've I've said this before here. Some Christians are scared to read the book of Revelation. Raise your hand if you've ever been just a little intimidated by the book of Revelation. Right. Because we don't really understand all of what it's saying. Don't be scared. Keep reading and reading. What's going on in Revelation, it's a future glimpse that will provide present hope, that will carry you on through this life. And you're not really supposed to understand completely the book of Revelation. It's literature. It's pointing to something that's so good and amazing or, on the flip side, something so destructive that it can't be put into words plainly. And so it uses descriptive language, poetry, to help us understand what is going on here. Okay, back in. Revelation 21, verses 20 through 22 through 27. God is glorious. That's what we are looking at right now. Verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there, They will bring it into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. You see, Christian, God is glorious. What is the Bible saying about God? It's that he is full of glory. Look at verse 23. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. The glory of God is radiating light 
to the new Jerusalem, the new heavens. And the city that, that you are a citizen, citizenship of now, right now, Philippians says that we are citizenships of, our citizenship is in heaven. So you take your Canadian citizenship, which is valuable. We, we love, oh, I'm not a Canadian citizen. I can't say that. My American citizenship, our Canadian citizenship, it's a privilege to be born where we're in the West. It's a privilege. We don't face a lot of the atrocities and a lot of the difficult things that a lot of people in this world face. Some of you are thinking, well, what's going on in the elections right now? I don't know. But at least in the past and up till now, it's been rather nice. And I don't fear the future either. I'll just say that. But we actually have a citizenship in heaven. We have a citizenship in heaven. And here it's describing the city. So your citizenship right now, this is what's going on in your city that you're going to. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha Omega, he's providing the electricity. He's providing the light. He is so glorious that the whole city is full of his glory. His glory is so bright. His Shekinah glory, as the Bible says, is radiating throughout the whole city. There's no nighttime. It's always daytime. Nothing filthy will even enter into the city, for it can't. All those who enter in the city have been covered by the blood of the Lamb, because the blood of the Lamb is righteous. And that's what's happening in this glorious city, because the glorious city is a location of our glorious God. God is glorious. Now, it comes to my attention that we all fall short of understanding just how glorious God is. None of us completely grasp it and until we get to heaven and we're in this presence. We're, until we see it, our faith becomes sight. We're always going to be trotting along this life with one foot in front of the other, trying to better understand just how glorious this God is. So I thought of an illustration for that. This past week, I took my daughter to a local restaurant establishment. She ordered a cheeseburger. I love cheeseburgers. I've been telling my kids the glories of cheeseburgers for years, and they're finally replacing the measly hot dog with a delicious cheeseburger. And that's so exciting as a father. (laughs) However, we sit down in the restaurant, we get our food, and she takes one, two small bites of a cheeseburger. And she's like, this tastes funny. I don't really like it. And I'm like, oh, geez. But, but as, as a, being a dad, and you know this, parents, that there's bittersweetness in that. I want, in, on principle, my kids to finish their food. But when they don't, I'm so happy because I get to eat their food too. <laughs> so there's conflict in my soul right now. So without self-control, I said, are you sure you don't want to finish your cheeseburger? Okay, fine. I took it. I bit into it. I took a big bite and I smelled something. I smelled household cleaner or something like that. Ammonia or something disgusting. The glory of the cheeseburger was no more. I went to the waitress and I explained to her. She took a whiff of it and she, she said the same thing. The waitress came back. It was, she, she was very apologetic. She said, we'll give you anything on the menu, whatever you want. And my daughter just kept shaking her head. No, I'm fine. You see, I've been to that restaurant many times, and I know what they can produce. They can produce some really good food. But for her, that was her first time. The glory of the cheeseburger, indeed, the glory of the whole restaurant was disgusting in her eyes. She didn't want anything in that moment. And I just wonder how many of us have a dull view of God based on poor experience with church or with the word or with others proclaimed Christians. I think that so many Christians around the world have such a view, a small view of God, such a limited view of his glory because of one bad experience that sticks around in their mind or years and years of going to some dead church that doesn't really believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if that is your experience, get involved in this church. There is a lot of glorious things going on. Read your word. Notice the glories of God. 
don't, I will take my daughter back to that restaurant one day. Brooklyn, we're going to go back there and you're going to see they have some good food for you, okay? Don't let one bad experience affect your views of glory of God or don't let one dull lame childhood of having to go to church every Sunday, wearing your Sunday best, and that being your view of religion. Friends, our God is glorious, and wrapped up in his glory is delight. And if you start getting that God is glorious and he longs for you to glory in him, you start delighting in him. You're pleasing him. Following him is not burdensome. It's amazing. He provides delight. Psalm 16, 11, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. The psalmist wrote that on earth. He experienced that. He experienced on earth a taste of what will happen in heaven forever. Church, God is glorious. He demands that we glorify him because he wants our joy to be rooted in something that is glorious rather than something that is not glorious. If you are glorying in anything else but God, it will one day perish. It will let you down as we talked about last week. But if you glory yourself in God, and this is why God commands it, it's not, it it, it might, in our minimal view, it might be, you might say, oh, that sounds selfish. Well, what else would God want you to glory in but himself? If he is the root, the source of all goodness, all delight, all joy, then you go to the source. And if he's a good father, then he demands you to go to the source. And the source is is himself. And friend, I want you to glory in someone that has, in, in a being that has existed for all eternity. Don't glory in some pop star or some politician or some fading idea. But glory in the God, the Alpha and the Omega. I wonder if this is a God that you've been introduced to. If not, I am sorry. But realign your view of God according to the scriptures. Lastly, God is triune. God is three in one. You've heard of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit probably. One person of the Trinity is not 33.3333% of the Trinity. That's not what the Bible is saying. But each are distinct and each are fully God. You see, in the Trinity, we see the one God in three persons glorying each other. And if you have questions or hesitations as to whether or not you ought to delight in God, I don't know if that even registers on a lot of people's minds. Does God and delight, do they coexist in your minds? According to the God of the Bible, that should go together. And the best example we have of that is the Trinity itself. The Trinity is a model of delighting in God. The Son has lived in the bosom of the Father. Now that's a, a poetic way of saying that the Son is so close to the Father that the, Son, the Father actually delights in the Son. The Son loves being next to the Father. And it means that the Father, that He is the Father's most beloved. So you know when you're holding one of your kids or a, a, a little child that you love so much, and you're just like, oh, I just love him so much. Oh, I just want to squeeze him. Just a little picture of the Father's relationship to the Son. The Father loves the Son. The Son, in turn, loves the Father. They delight in one another. In John 16, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit's main role is to glorify Him, the third person of the Trinity. So the Spirit's role is to glorify Jesus. And the following verses, Jesus is talking to His disciples, and then Jesus prays this prayer. This is the prayer that Jesus prays. He says, He lifted his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom have given him, to all all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Before the world existed. Before the world existed, Jesus had glory, unlike he did when he came to earth. The earth did not glorify him in, a, uh, in the same sense that we will glorify him in heaven. In a sense, Jesus was glorified, but he wasn't crowned king of kings. He wasn't given praise the way he should have been given praise. The, all throughout eternity, the Trinity has existed. The Father glorifying the Son, the Son glorifying the Father, and then we see the Spirit is the one who does the work in our heart. So going back up to Romans chapter uh, 16, verse 25, according to him who's able to strengthen you, the one who's able to strengthen you is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is glorifying Christ. Church, we could go on. Who is God? God is love. He is merciful. He is holy. God is provider. He is just. He is wrathful. He is beautiful. He is perfect. He is patient. And so much more. This is what we must do. We must continue to transform our views of God according to God himself, which is mediated through the Bible. Because if it's not mediated through the Bible, it's going to be mediated through something else, consciously or subconsciously. If you are a non-Christian or if you are just kind of here as a guest and you don't really know much about this Christian thing. Let me just explain to you. Christianity is not dull. I don't know if that's been your experience. Or if you are a Christian and you're, it just tastes a little bit dull to you, then that's not the God of the Bible. But the God of the Bible longs for you to be happy and joyful. And the God of the Bible says that that happens when you are connected with him and you are connected with him through Jesus Christ. And if you've heard of the cross and the resurrection, that's what Jesus does on the cross. While before you were alienated from God, indeed, the Bible says you were an enemy of God, now through Christ you can be connected to God. You can be forgiven of your sins. And that's why you are disconnected from him. This doesn't mean that we are an assembly of perfect people. All it means is that we're an assembly of redeemed people. So you might more morally be better than me. You might be kinder than me, more generous than me. But the Bible puts us all under the same judgment, that we must be reconciled to God. Because God is holy. If you have questions about that, please come see me afterward or perhaps the person that brought you. I would be delighted to tell you about our delightful God.